0: What's up, guys? Thanks for coming to our Kyle and Miss You podcast. Here you will find resources to help you grow in real devotion, real community, and real responsibility, so you can learn to love Jesus, not just for a season, but for a lifetime. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into this. Jesus, we love you. I pray that you'd speak tonight, that you would... Open ears to hear you. Lord, I pray that these words would be yours and not mine. Thank you, Jesus, for everything, God, everything that you're doing in our hearts. Amen. So in the past several weeks, we've been going through Jesus' most famous opening sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, to see what he tells us the kingdom of God is like. And as Taylor said a few weeks ago, there are certain questions that every person in the world has to answer no matter what religion or philosophy they hold. Everyone must ask questions like, does my life matter at all? How do I know? Or how can I know when something is right or wrong, and who says so? And what am I going to do when my life comes to an end? What's going to happen to me? Now those are some big questions. But if you search the pages of history, you will find that no one had better answers to these questions than Jesus did. In his opening sermon, he talks about the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will last forever with God ruling over the world in love and justice, and he tells us that we can enter the kingdom of God if we will only submit to the king. This sermon and this sermon series is all about helping you to, to get a glimpse into the windows of that kingdom and see what it is like. To re- recap everything that Jesus has said so far, like Dryden was talking about last week, Only someone who knows they are truly poor can come to God for help. Someone who knows they have nothing to give. Someone who's really poor relies on somebody else for everything. That person can be truly happy because they can receive forgiveness and life from God. Jesus went on to say that the the law is a measure of protection for people and a standard or ethic for the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. Then he went on to talk about all the different ways those standards play out in our lives. God expects us to not only do the right actions, but to have a heart that is set on pleasing him. That's why to be in God's kingdom, it's not enough just to not murder someone. You have to truly love them in your your heart and not want to hurt them at all. To be in God's kingdom, it's not enough to just not have sex before marriage. You have to be faithful to God even in your heart and let him change your desires so that you can experience the real intimacy he wants you to experience. To be in God's kingdom, it's not enough simply to keep your oaths. You should live in a way that you don't even have to make them because people trust your word when you say something. To be in God's kingdom, it's not enough to only treat people how they treat you. You must treat them better than they treat you And wait for God to provide justice to those who hurt you. And that's where we pick up tonight, at somewhat of a pivot point in Jesus' sermon. Jesus is about to summarize everything he has said so far, before moving on to some other topics we're going to cover in weeks to come. So we're going to start in chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 43-48. through And it says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Throughout Jesus' sermon so far, he's been correcting some common sayings that people in this time often said. This one is actually astonishing to me. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Can you believe people said that? This was a common saying, something that everyone accepted as true. But when you think about all the things people say now, It makes sense that something so silly could become so popular. Have you ever heard this one? Well, that's your truth. This is my truth. As if we live in different universes from one another, even though you're standing right there. But do you know where this phrase Jesus is quoting came from? It came from a book called the Talmud. Towards the beginning of the history of the nation of Israel, God sent Moses to lead the people out of slavery. When God had made them free, he also gave them some civil, religious, and moral laws to follow. And Moses recorded those laws for us in the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Torah, or the books of law. So to the Jewish people and to us, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are God's words written down by Moses communicating the origin story of all existence and also recording some of God's standards and laws that he set to define his relationship with Israel and by extension to us but some of the teachers of the law a group that Jesus was famous for arguing with started writing down their own interpretations of this law and those interpretations were written in another book called the Talmud so this law originally as God gave it was you shall love your neighbor the teachers of the law came along and said okay this is what God really meant they came up with instead love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. That's quite a jump, isn't it? Now, I remember one time when I was in fifth grade, I decided to play football. Here's a picture. (laughs) Don't laugh too hard. Gotta love that 2006 camera phone quality, or just Mm -hmm. if you have a Samsung phone now. (laughs) Um, Now, I knew I was not exactly an athlete, I was kind of like the nerdy kid from the Sandlot, just in a different sport. Um, but I thought football was really interesting and cool and I loved watching all the games at home, so I decided to play. And all season, I played backup, of course, and somewhat watched happily from the bench. But deep down, I knew I really wanted to get out there and play. Now our team was the absolute worst one. We went 0-8, and, and for those of you who don't know sports, that 0 wins, 8 losses. And somehow we still got to play in a bowl game, even, you know, because everyone's a winner, right? And they called it the Orange Bowl. Might have well been called the Toilet Bowl because both teams were that bad. And so the game was almost over, no one had scored, but the other team had the ball and they were about to. And then the coach caught me off guard and woke me up by pulling me over by the face mask. And he said, hey Vistein, go take the play to Snell. Now Snell was the team captain on defense, who's this big middle linebacker, and he didn't particularly like me. But what I heard the coach say was, hey, Vistine, go take the place of Snell. (laughs) And so I ran out there looking like Phoebe from Friends, and I told Snell, hey, coach says I'm in, and you're out. And so he was so angry and confused, but we were running out of time, so he ran over to the sideline so we wouldn't get a penalty. And then the team gathered around in a huddle, and they asked what defensive scheme we were running. And of course, I said, I don't know, I'm just happy to be here. (laughs) But the other team was ready to go, so we lined up. And then in in an enormous stroke of luck, I didn't deserve the running back from the other team dropped the ball, and with a lucky bounce, it went right into my arms and I fell to the ground with it. And now Snell was very angry with me because that should have been him. But we won our first game of the season, so the coach couldn't be too upset with me. <laughs> but how did I understand my coach so badly? Things really could have, could have turned out a lot differently. We could have lost the whole game. I really had no idea what I was doing out there. To be honest, I heard not what my coach said, but what I wanted to hear. And that's what the teachers of the law had done to God. God was trying to make his intentions, his standards, and his heart clear to his people, but the people were not hearing his actual words, but instead focusing on what they wanted his words to mean. When God's laws were added to in this way, it often caused the people to lose sight of what God really meant when he made the law in the first place. They came to the conclusions so far from the heart of God that they were not serving the same God anymore but a God of their own imaginations. Listen to this. In those days, it was customary for a religious person to pray every day, God, thank you that I am not a tax collector, a prostitute, or a woman. This is a far cry from the heart of Jesus who spent time with those exact groups of people and loved them. And he showed them things about himself that the religious people never saw. But... What was the motivation behind the teachers of the law? Why would they do this? They were clarifying what they thought the text meant. We have to be careful not to do this when we read the Bible. The Bible is not a horoscope, it's not about you. You shouldn't just open it up and read something random and think that it applies to your life. When God inspired all these books that are in the Bible, God had a purpose in mind in writing it. And so did those who authored the books. So we have to see what the book is really about to see what it can mean for our lives. We have to see the ways that our life is similar to those who first read it. But the primary issue with the teachers of the law is that they, didn't, that they misunderstood God's heart and his intentions in writing the laws the way he did. They thought something like, surely God can't mean love everyone. He has no idea how bad these people are. And so they came away with something like, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. They failed to see, like we mentioned before, that God's laws are relational. Eli Gotrio says, Discipleship, discipline is a doorway to intimacy. Discipline is a doorway to intimacy. God's eternal laws reflect his relational heart. But the teachers of the law saw the laws not as expressions of a perfectly good heart, but as restrictions from an irrational tyrant. God's heart in making laws is to preserve for us the best, the sweetest, the most lovely and noble experiences of joy and closeness that the world has to offer. You can tell this is true by the way God reacts when we break his laws. In another story, in the book of 2 Samuel in the Bible, David, King David's own son Absalom was rebelling against him and trying to kill him. But instead of getting angry, instead of fighting back, David refused to fight. He ran away from his own rightful palace. And he even told the soldiers going off to war to take it easy on his son because he loved him. And even when Absalom died in battle, even when the rebellion was squashed and David's life could go back to normal? This is how he responded. 2 Samuel chapter 18 says, The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I died instead of you. What kind of love is this? This is the love of God who did die for us when we were rebels, like Absalom. G. Campbell Morgan says it like this, Love forever suffers when the loved one suffers. I sometimes think that the difference between God's love and my love at its highest lies just there. I love, and if the one I love is untrue to me, I suffer. Why? Because I have lost that love. God does not suffer in that way. He suffers because the one who ceases to love him is suffering. All the sin of humanity is causing suffering to God. The very suffering that man brings upon himself is most keenly felt in heaven. So what is the motivation for obedience to the law? Our motivation for obedience is only in God's love for us and in our corresponding and rightful love back to him. God's love and God's goodness ought to motivate us to obey him so that we can experience more of him. David, in one of his psalms, chapter 37, verse 25, says this, I was young, and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. In other words, You will never look back on your life and think, Oh, I can't believe I trusted God with that. That just won't happen. He is kind and only has you in mind when he gives you a command. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. In Moses' farewell speech, he told them, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him? to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Henry Blackaby gives a couple of very good examples in his book, Experiencing God. Imagine you had to cross a field just full of landmines and someone comes along and happens to know where every single one of them is and he offers to walk you through. Now, I would probably stick close to that guy, right? Only a fool would say, let me figure it out for myself and make my own mistakes. God knows every possible thing that could hurt you, and He intends to lead you in a way that will be for your ultimate good. But that doesn't mean that you'll never experience hurt as a Christian. It does mean that you can trust God that when you're obedient, even the hurt you do experience has a very good purpose. Underneath all our excuses, if we're honest, there is a lingering doubt about God's goodness that comes out sometimes, just like it did for the teachers of the law when they rewrote some of the Torah. We sometimes think that God is holding something back from us, something good. How often do we feel trapped or limited by God's boundaries or His standards, which will ultimately bring us freedom? Another Blackaby example goes like this. The Lord himself tells you, I have a gift for you. A beautiful, wonderful expression of what God, what love is. I will provide you with a spouse, a husband, or a wife. Your relationship with this person will bring out the very best in you. It will give you an opportunity to experience some of the deepest and most meaningful expressions of human love. He even tells you that you'll be blessed with children. He will add to all of that love but then he tells you not to cheat on your spouse is God limiting you of course not he's protecting the depths of your experience of human love discipline is the doorway to intimacy first John chapter 5 verse 3 says for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments And his commandments are not burdensome. How easy it is to follow someone who is so kind when we maintain an attitude of gratefulness and trust in his character. It's easy to trust someone that you know is thinking for your good. It's easy, of course, until we're faced with a challenge. Jesus goes on to refute the saying of the teachers of the law. He says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Why does Jesus extend loving your neighbor from the original law to include loving your enemy? The teachers of the law really dumbed this law down. They said, love your neighbor or those close to you but hate your enemies, those who oppose you. Jesus... Went and raise the standard even to love your neighbor by loving your enemies and those who persecute you, those who treat you wrongly because you're doing something right. So Jesus's standard is higher than the original in a way. Why? Because Jesus recognized it's easy to obey when you feel like it. So after my year in football, I realized that it was time to explore other things and see what I could do well at. And so in middle school, I found out that I had a little bit of a knack for playing the trumpet. And then my whole life basically became kind of about that, trying to be the best, working all the time for it. And it became such a piece of my identity. Here's one of my senior pictures. I was so serious and full (laughs) of myself. But one thing that I quickly realized is that when you go to competitions and concerts and auditions, it doesn't matter how good you sounded in the practice room. You have to be able to play it well under pressure when it matters the most. Often I found that I would learn the music and feel very confident until I was in front of a judge who was evaluating my performance, and then I would crumble. And it seemed like all my hard work for the past months would be for nothing. But over time I learned how to play under pressure. I learned some breathing exercises designed to speed up your adrenaline and your heart rate to simulate the feeling of being nervous or anxious or excited. And so I played every day under those conditions, sometimes multiple times per day. What I started to notice was that the best players could play well under the most intense circumstances. And I wanted to be the best. Now, I did all that for a trophy that's sitting in a box in my closet collecting dust. I want some competitions, but does that really matter in the grand scheme of things? Can you imagine if people train themselves that diligently to be holy or godly when it's the hardest? I learned through playing the trumpet that the multiplier of all virtues is consistency. A man who is steadily good is preferable to a man who is seldomly great. This is the test of obedience. The true mark of a man or a woman's character is how they act when it would be easiest for them to be selfish. This is the true test of growing up in God. Proverbs 24:10 says, "If you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? Jesus has been pointing out in his sermon the situations that are the most difficult to obey in. When you have anger in your heart towards someone, when you have impure inward desires, or when you're struggling to keep your word, when someone mistreats you. Why? Because he knows that these are the situations in which we are in the most danger of disobedience, and therefore in the most danger of getting hurt. When we mishear God's instructions or his commands, when we amend them to make them more convenient for us. We are undercutting God's protection from the consequences, but most importantly, we are blocking the way to intimacy with him. When you ignore your friend or choose not to listen when they say something important, how does that affect the relationship? It can only hurt it. God speaks not for his benefit, but for ours. We need to listen to him, especially when it would be easiest not to. That's when we really need to tune in to what he's saying. Jesus went on to say he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now I I used to misunderstand this verse. I used to think that when Jesus says he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, I used to think he was saying bad things happen to both good and bad people, but Both rain and sun were a very good thing to people in those days when Jesus was speaking. Almost everyone lived in places rich with agriculture, and they loved the sun. Who doesn't love a sunny day? But they celebrated when it rained. Back then, they didn't have the movies we have now, where it rained during the sad part. You see the main character wistfully looking out the window with some Sarah McLachlan in the background. The righteous and unrighteous people Jesus, we're talking about. He's referring to those who are right with God and those who are not right with God. It's not not necessarily the same as good and bad people. Jesus tells us many times that no one is good except God. The righteous are simply those who have come to God and asked for forgiveness, and they've repented. They're trying to change and meet His standards for relationship. So Jesus was basically saying. God sends his blessings, his smile, for a time both on those who are right with him and those who aren't. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. At the Chi Alpha, at the University of Stanford, a preacher named Glenn Davis gave a challenge to their their group for each of them to start praying daily for five different people to be saved. One small group leader took the challenge. She picked four girls who at least seemed interested in God. But she felt something in her heart telling her to pray for her friend, Jessica. Now, Jessica was known for mocking Christians. She hated God. She even said that she would never believe in Him. The other four girls, this small group leader, could really see coming to know the Lord. But she thought, now if Jessica comes to know God, then I'll know this prayer thing really works. So she prayed for about six weeks, and the four girls that she was praying for, besides Jessica, got saved. And that was pretty cool, but she kept praying every day for another six weeks, and it didn't seem like anything was happening. So she was about to get discouraged and stop praying as much. But one day, Jessica came up to her and said with tears in her eyes, Hey, can I go to church with you on Sunday? And she said, Sure, absolutely. And they went together. She didn't want to question it. But afterwards, she asked her, Hey, Jessica, it's great that you came with me and everything, but what made you change your mind? And Jessica told her that earlier the day she talked to her, she was walking on campus and it was just a beautiful, sunny fall day. The temperature was just right. The grass was still green, but the leaves were bright golden. The birds were chirping. And she thought to herself, This is so wonderful. This is so beautiful. I just wish I had someone to thank for it. And then she started crying because she realized she did have someone to thank. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is kind even to those who ignore him or run from him. In fact, that's why Jesus said, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the standard for obedience. God's own perfect heart is to be our example. Obedience is doing what God has told us and doing it quickly because we love him. Jesus stood the test of loving us when it was the hardest, when the most was on the line. When he was naked and beaten and mocked and rejected, even while hanging on a cross, he was thinking of you. The author of Hebrews says, "...for the joy set before him, he endured the cross." This means he was literally thinking the whole time about how wonderful it would be when you and I could be with him again. And even when people were literally torturing him, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. God's perfect heart leads us to perfect obedience so that we can experience perfect intimacy. A lot of us hear that word perfect and your stomach drops. And you think, all right, I don't think I can do this. He just said perfect. But the word perfect that Jesus used here is difficult to translate from Greek to English. It really means this. Wanting nothing necessary to completeness, perfect, consummate human integrity and virtue, or full-grown, adult, or full-age, mature, To be perfect is to be proportionate and complete in all aspects, to be grown up. My friend Alex Rodriguez says that to be perfect is to be continually adding to that which is lacking in yourself. So Jesus is not asking us to do something that is impossible. He is simply asking us to see God's perfect heart and to long to be more like him and to take steps of growth every day in a great novel called The Princess and Curdy by George MacDonald. Curdy, the main character who, in the first book, saved the day in the kingdom, was going through a slump in his life. In the first book, he had met the princess and he saved her. And he'd also met her grandmother, the sweetest and kindest woman that he'd ever met. In rising to the occasion to save the kingdom, he became the prince he was meant to be. But in this second book, he went back to being a minor, and though um, through, through the everyday grind of work, he became less like the prince he was. His parents seemed less thrilled by him. He stopped noticing the little things, stopped having wonder at the beauty of the world. But then one day, he decided to take his arrows, and he went for a walk. He was in a grumpy mood for some reason that day, and he saw this beautiful white pigeon flying through the air. So without thinking, he pulled out an arrow and he shot this bird. And so he ran to pick it up and all of a sudden he began to feel sorry for it as it throbbed and bled and looked at him in his hands. And then he remembered the princess's grandmother, the kindest woman in the world. And he remembered that she owned a white pigeon. And somehow he just knew it was hers. And then he thought to himself, why did I kill this bird? I had no reason to what have I been sent into this world for surely not to be a death to its joy and loveliness and at that moment he realized that over time slowly and gradually he'd become less and less like the prince he had been and more and more like a gruff old miner he was not who he was he was meant to be he was far from it so what could he do he realized that the only thing to do was to go and find that princess's grandmother and apologize to her. But this event woke him up. Killing the bird made him see who he really was and where he was going. The only reason he could take the life of something so precious, so easily, so thoughtlessly is that he himself was not really living. He forgot who he was and why he even existed. So he had to take the right next step. So some of you, if you look at your life, you know you aren't pleased with who you are. You know you are meant to be more. You know your tendency towards selfishness and thoughtlessness towards others. You aren't who you are meant to be. But Jesus calls on you and he says, look at your father's heart. He is perfect and he is kind. So take a step towards him. The thing about holiness is that God won't just zap us overnight, like Eli was talking about last weekend. He shows us one thing at a time. He puts his finger on that one thing, and he doesn't let go until we give it to him. And then we get closer to him. And then there's another thing, and another, and it's kind of painful, but before long, we're a lot closer and fuller and happier than we ever thought we could be. In Caiapha, we have a saying that knowledge equals responsibility. That means some of us are baby Christians. Some of you got baptized four days ago, last weekend. You need to learn how to eat, how to read the Bible, and how to breathe, how to pray. Some of us, we've been followers of Jesus for years. And if that's the case, we need to learn not only how to take care of our adult responsibilities, but how to care for others, those who are younger than us, how to make disciples. However old you are, God is bringing you to maturity. He is calling you to grow a little more today and become a little wiser and a little holier. Holiness is wholeness. Holiness is happiness in its truest, most permanent form. God's perfect heart, step by step, leads us to perfect obedience so that we can experience perfect intimacy. Holiness is the most spectacular journey to intimacy. Each painful step followed by a new level of beauty and closeness never before imagined. At times, it feels painful, like crossing a great chasm, but really all we need to take this journey is to take one more step, the one right in front of us, revealed by our all-perfect, all-kind God, the Holy Spirit. He would never lead us anywhere except to places that are better for us than the ones where we currently stand. So, I encourage you to take some time and think about what is that next step. Whether you're a brand new Christian or whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, or if you're not a Christian at all, and God is calling on you to come to Him. What is the step that you need to take? What is the thing that you need to turn away from? Who are you turning to? I'm going to pray, and it will be done. Jesus, thank you for your Holy Spirit. You always reveal us to us what it is that we need to work on, what it is that we need to grow in. I pray that you help us to trust your heart and see your heart. The way you've loved us so selflessly, so consistently when it was the hardest to do so, I pray that you'd help us To trust that your, your commands are good, that your heart is good in the circumstances of our lives. And I pray that you'd help us, oh God, to continue taking those steps towards you every day. Lord, help us not to take years and weeks and months to take simple steps that rob us of the things that you want to give us, the intimacy that you want to have with us. Help us to be quick to obey, to do what you Tell us to do it, to do it quickly, because we love you. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for everything, God. Amen.